The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition Sox Machine Live as we are streaming on 4th of July in 2022. I am Josh Nelson alongside Jim Margulis as we bring you again this special edition of Sox Machine Live. It makes it a lot easier when you are doing live streams or podcasts, not having a bunch of mortars or fireworks going off in the background. Uh, So we are doing this on Monday afternoon before the Chicago White Sox start a very critical homestand. Also, the dogs that the dogs that bark at those fireworks. Yes. Also, the (laughs) dogs that bark at the fireworks. Uh, as the Chicago White Sox have a pretty critical week of a homestand. They got three games against the Minnesota Twins, and they have four games at home against the Detroit Tigers, in which last time the White Sox faced the Tigers, they swept them. So this is a good opportunity for the White Sox to get themselves back into this postseason race. And they did so in a big way this past weekend, Jim, as a bit of a surprise, the Chicago White Sox swept the San Francisco Giants, and they won the first game one to nothing thanks to some Lurie Garcia magic, which we'll get to in a moment. But they did it in very convincing fashion in games two and three against the Giants. And I have to say, if we were based in San Francisco and we mm-hmm. were a Giants machine, I think the only thing we, we would be discussing out of this series is just how poor San Francisco's defense was over the three games and Mm -hmm. how it gave the White Sox a lot of opportunities. But we're Sox machine. We're White Sox fans. So from a White Sox perspective, isn't it great to watch the White Sox be the team taking advantage of all of these defensive miscues for once? Yes, we've seen this series before. It's just that the the hand is on the other foot. I think that's the (laughs) uh, uh, naked gun line. It's... uh, I opened the wake up call actually with an article from the San Francisco Chronicle, just talking about like basically removing all the information, you know, who won, who lost, where the game was played and just going through the uh, adjectives being used that uh, the you know defense was gruesome and the offense wasn't, uh, was non-existent until the ninth inning and fans who showed up in droves had nothing to cheer for. And that sounded so much like so many White Sox games we've seen earlier this year. 
And now it was the White Sox coming through. Like it, it had the same kind of, you know, especially like the first two games where the, you know, the San Francisco pitching was actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, just didn't really see, you know, between the extra outs and the lack of offense, they just had nothing really to, you know, no margin for error, no way to absorb those mistakes. And then just by the end of the series, Sunday's game, just the entire ability to prevent runs eroded. <laughs> and that's, you know, we, I, I liken them to the, you know, the Bears teams of so many seasons, I guess, of which is where the defense kept them in the games until it couldn't, until it physically was not uh, capable. The stamina just uh, gave way and they were just not able to keep the other team off the board to make the games competitive. And that's what we saw here, except the White Sox were adding on. The White Sox were making use of those extra outs, um, double play balls that we figured would end innings did not, uh, you know, third outs uh, turned into fourth outs and, 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 you know, those, those singles uh, that always came a batter too late earlier mm-hmm. in games were a just in time, uh, whether it's Luis Roberts, Sevi Zavala on Sunday. So, yeah, it was very refreshing. I, I think the only drawback, and I'm not sure if this is on your agenda is that they did not hit a home run all weekend. And that's something that I think that's the only missing piece in terms of what I would have liked to see, but every other element, you know, all parts of the order contributing, uh, great effort from the pitching staff, good defense, like everything else was in place. I agree with the concern about not seeing a home run, but it is San Francisco. So it is not a great home run ballpark. I was not expecting to see the White Sox hit a lot of home runs in that mm-hmm. series. Was there only one home run? Yes, in the entire the two series. Teams, yep. Yeah, and that was the first batter that Dylan Cease faced, and that was the only run the Giants scored was that leadoff homer. That was a bomb by Wade Jr., though. That was straightaway center field. That was that was <laughs> yeah. a bomb by him. Yeah, Jock but, Peterson had that 414-foot double off the right center wall of Giolito on Sunday. But, yeah, otherwise, just a lot of fly balls to the right center warning track especially. Right. So I, I was not expecting a lot of home runs. My tune's going to change, though, with this seven-game homestand with mm-hmm. the home runs. That is something that we'll talk about later in the show, and that will be a focus as far as the White Sox success or lack of success this upcoming homestand against the Minnesota Twins and Detroit Tigers. But let's talk about the unexpected production. And I will admit, I ride Gavin Sheets hard. I give mm-hmm. him a tough time this season because his production has been lacking. I have been giving Lurie Garcia a tough time because before this series, he was the worst active player in major league baseball as Christian Pache was optioned to the minor leagues. Finally. And Sebi Zavala's strikeout rate was so ridiculous in triple a gym that I was not expecting him to be much of an offensive contributor. And I wanted to see Carlos Perez get these opportunities over Zavala. Well, if you are a sheet stand, a Lurie legend fan and on the bandwagon for Sebi Zavala, you had a good weekend because Gavin Sheets went three for 10 with five RBIs. And I thought defensively he was pretty strong in right field and impressed me with this throwing arm. Lurie Garcia had the game winning hit in the first game and he went five for 13 in the series with two RBIs and three runs scored. And Sebi Zavala went four for nine. He's got three RBIs and Jim Savala has caught Yasmani Grandal in the RBI category. Now we haven't seen Grandal hit for a while. Mm -hmm. So that simple sentence, if you told me at the beginning of the season that on 4th of July, Josh, that Sebi Zavala would have almost as many RBIs as Yasmani Grandal, 
My expectation is that Yasmani Grandal has suffered a major injury and he has missed two and a half months of the season. Uh, but that is not the case as Grandal has had way more plate appearances than Zavala. And Grandal, obviously, we have noted his struggles many a times. Mm-hmm. The White Sox scored 19 runs in this series. Those three players drove in 10 of those 19 runs. We saw this type of unexpected production last year, especially in May and June, to help keep the White Sox above water, to allow them to really take the lead in the American League Central and run away with the division early. Is this a sign of something to come for these three particular players this month? We should hope so. I mean, Sheets has shown the ability to bounce back from rough stretches and make good use of being optioned and, and, and regroup. And, you know, watching him in the batter's box, he's not as, you know, his problems don't stem from a lack of discipline from swinging at everything. So I think part of the thing that's frustrating about him is that he looks so close to being able to put together productive plate appearances. And when he doesn't, and when he has like a rough month, you don't have any kind of visual cues like say Luis Robert. He gives us a lot of cues to know whether he's tracking a pitcher well, whether he's uh, you know tamed his aggression and whether he's you know bringing pitchers back to an area where he can hit them. So if he's you know, swinging wildly, we know like, okay, it might take him a few at bats before he gets back on track or it might be a rough series, that sort of thing. But sheets like he looks under control. It's just the contact went nowhere. Uh, just, you know, he was lucky to get, you know, shank a single left field, here or there, but otherwise hitting ground balls in the shift or fly balls that just not travel. So to see a little bit more exit velocity from him, like he almost seemed, you know, to, to go back to that Tony LaRusse line about like results, looking at results, like Sheets is one of the cases where you kind of have to look at results because he looks under control otherwise. And if he's not squaring the ball up, if the you know, launch angle, the velocity isn't there, um, it, it, there is something to where like he's not he's not expecting the pitches in the right order or he's getting fooled by sequencing something like that to where like, he's just not putting authoritative swings on pitches. Uh, So I like seeing him like being able to shoot that double left field against lefty. Like he should be able to do that. He, He wasn't that big of a split case in the minors. Like, you know, I still expect him to be mostly a platoon bat, but he should be able to have, you know, that was his first extra base hit against left-handed pitching. There should be a few more of those here and there to where like, if he starts against a left-handed opener, he should be allowed to surprise uh, in order to balance the lineup later against like a righty who's carrying more of the bulk innings. Like he shouldn't be any lefty. shouldn't send him scurrying out of the lineup uh, with Larry. It's tough uh, just because I don't know if you've had this experience, like wrestling in your head. Um, Tony LaRusso's answer about like, you know, looking at results and like Garcia being, you know, the second worst hitter and now the first worst hitter, maybe that was like the, case where like now that he's the worst he has to pick it up like christian Pache was like giving him cover he just didn't want to be last in his class like he's okay being second to last but like just now that Pache is there like okay i gotta get together but like i think i i reached a piece to where like garcia's successes here and there aren't going to keep him in the lineup because tony larusa is going to keep him in the lineup regardless like you know your choices are between uh, Larry failing a lot and, uh, you know, Larry being up and down, but having some successes that makes Larusa feel vindicated or, you know, extra condescending. So I feel like it's a, uh, you know, neither choice is satisfying, but at least I'll take the on-field successes. And also the, the fact that Garcia seems like a good teammate. Uh, Zavala is the one I'm completely stumped by just because, you know, watching him in Charlotte, like he could hit 
bad pitching, but not great pitching. And right-handed hitters, like he he feasted on lefties this year, but righties he was not competitive against, and especially righties with a, you know, a, an interesting arsenal or like an above-average arsenal for AAA. Like he didn't look like he was standing a chance so that he's like coming up with hits, coming up with singles, even if they're just like dropping in the right field, left field. Like he has some variety in his swings that I haven't seen before to where like he is able to beat shifts or just not be shiftable and open up a little bit more of the field to have more productive plate appearances, even if, you know, he isn't going to have the slugging percentage that he had at Charlotte. So it is possible that these guys can keep doing this, but I am surprised like between McGuire picking up a little bit here and there and catching well and Zavala having a nice little run, like I have not heard anything about Grandal's you know, condition, you know, how close he is. He's traveling with the team. He doesn't seem like he's close to rehab stints. Um, given that the entire season was a rehab stint for him. Like I just, it, it seems like he's curiously absent from the discussion, the way like Jimenez is very present in the, when he comes back discussion Hendricks, when he comes back, uh, angle has been seen doing drills. Like Grandal has been, uh, you know, he's been, I guess, conspicuous in his, how quiet his absence is. And that surprises me. Well, Eno Stairs of the Athletic, friend of the podcast, he did report because he was reporting for that series between the Giants and White Sox that he saw Grandal take batting practice on Friday night in the first game, and that later in that weekend, Grandal is running the bases as fast as he possibly can. So maybe it's not so much running as a light jog around the bases, but mm-hmm. he's he's starting to do some physical activity what that suggests as far as his timeline, as you pointed out, Jim, we have no idea. Grandal, there's no clarity. Aaron Bummer might be dead for all we know. Yeah, I at least we know he had a setback. Right. <laughs> at least at least you know something, even if it's bad news. Like I'm surprised that like maybe Grandal is just so rough or his flaws are pronounced enough that, you know, he can be made up for. Especially like when he just doesn't have that lower body uh, power to generate the home runs that he did last year and in, in, in quick succession. Well, we are streaming live on our YouTube page at youtube.com slash socks machine. So for our podcast listeners, if you listen to this later, Rick Khan, uh, I am expecting him to speak with the media because it does start off this homestand. So maybe we'll get more clarity in the upcoming hours from Rick Khan about Yasmani Grandal's current injury situation and what his timetable is to return to the White Sox. But, you know, again, just looking as far as the stats, like Sebi Zavala, the strikeouts are still at issue. He's got 17 strikeouts in 16 games this year to only two walks. So he's not going to walk a lot, and we know that he's going to swing and whiff a lot, again, with that strikeout rate. But Sebi Zavala's got six doubles, Jim, and mm-hmm. one home run. He has as many extra base hits as Yoan Makata, who has mm-hmm. four doubles and three homers. Zavala's hitting 313 with a 500 slugging percentage. So he's got 11 RBIs in 16 games, where Yasmani Grandal has 15 RBIs in 50 games, and Reese McGuire only has 10 RBIs in 45 games, but we knew that Reese McGuire was more of a defensive backup to Yasmani Grandal. We were not expecting a lot offensively from Reese McGuire, but here's Sebi Zavala getting a second opportunity. We've seen him surprise us last year with a three-home run game, uh, and here he is. Again, for the White Sox, putting up good offensive numbers. And Lucas Giolito, which California did wonders for him mm-hmm. uh, in this road trip, really improved. Uh, he gave Sebi Zavala a lot of credit as far as the pitch sequence 
for Giolito's successful start in game three of that series against the San Francisco Giants. So Sebi Zavala's been playing a lot better. Gavin Sheets is playing a lot better. And whether you like it or not, as Jim mentioned, uh, Lurie Garcia is going to be playing. Is it going to be a lot better? We'll see. It's Lurie Garcia. We we know Lurie. He has good series sometimes, and then we won't see him for another month. Uh, but fingers crossed that all three of them continue this type of production and the top of the lineup of Tim Anderson, Andrew Vaughn, Luis Robert, and Jose Abreu. They get hot this week, and then that would really help carry the White Sox through the week. Uh, one more shout out, Tanner Banks, Jim. Tanner mm-hmm. Banks really helped out the White Sox, pitching some big innings for the Sox in this weekend series. Right now, I believe he's the only left-handed reliever that Tony Russa has, and he's not necessarily a left-handed killer that you would think of like all of the loogies in Major League Baseball. And we, we mentioned Aaron Bummer that he had a setback. So the White Sox really don't have a lot of options from the left-hand side in, in the bullpen. And I took a look at the trade market for left-handed relievers, because if you want the White Sox to add, this is an area that I think you they should search for to help out Tanner Banks to get Tony La Russa another left-handed reliever. When you look at free agent relievers next season, the market is non-existent. Mm-hmm. So going to 2023 free agents, so you would have an extra year of control, it would require more prospects or a higher level of prospect to make that trade. And it's like Andrew Chafin with Detroit. And that's it. Mm-hmm. That that's that's your left-handed trade market right now. Uh, so it's going to be really tough for the White Sox to find help for Tanner Banks, but he had a really bad spell in May and he got sent back down to Charlotte. And now he, he, he here he is again with the White Sox. And are we going to see more Tanner Banks in these critical situations in the sixth and seventh inning where he's going to get the ball and there's a bunch of lefties coming up? White Sox fans are going to have to hope that Tanner Banks holds holds it down. Yeah, it's uh, it's I think with Banks, there was a little bit of a period in May where his stuff flattened out a little bit like he was hitting 92 instead of 94 in short doses. So perhaps that stretch that he had was, you know, I guess partial regression because his you know, he got off to such a great start, but also just might have been like a little bit of dead arm or something that effect of just his stuff being diminished a little bit. And he does not have the margin for error to get by. Um, but in this case, like the stuff has looked a little bit livelier as of late and uh, really he's the only choice. And I think, you know, LaRusse is going through a lot of different options. We saw Lopez, we've seen Lambert, we've seen banks when he, when he doesn't want to use Graveman and Joe Kelly, like the, the floor is open. And I think banks, mm-hmm. you know, with handedness concerns, like he just happened to be the guy getting called upon and, Sometimes it's a way to carve out a niche. I would be worried about just going to that well too often. I think, I I don't know if there's going to be a hot hand here to where like you, you feel like, you know, one, we saw it with Lopez, like where one um, outing is going to be instructive for ones that are going to come later. I think you have to go handedness and then, you know, maybe environment like ballpark conditions, home run proneness in order to, you know, try to limit the damage like one swing can do, like figure out who's better for that against a certain uh, sequence in a lineup. But uh, I think the good news is like Liam Hendricks is supposed to come back and that'll free up Graveman and Kelly for more of those outings um, to, you know, allow Banks to not have to do this and not, you know, I guess like have a Peter principle thing where you run out guys until they hit a wall and then they disappoint and then you feel like they can't do anything. Um, I'm surprised in, in Charlotte, like Zach Muckenhern, he's a lefty. 
he's like one of the few relievers actually performing in Charlotte. You have Yohan Ibar, you have Parker Markle, you have Anderson Severino, all these guys having really rough stretches. Muck and Hearn's been getting it done all year. And it seems like if they want to call up a lefty that who isn't Bennett Souza and Souza shouldn't be a factor into any kind of immediate plans, like Muck and Hearn, I think would be the guy if they want another lefty. And he would be somebody, I think, you know, he's not going to be a lefty killer, but he's at least shown enough in a tough environment to get a look if, if they really need somebody to, you know, not have Tanner Banks be the guy who faces every lefty, every series, you know, twice a series. And, and, and you have to roll with, you know, the risks of him being overexposed when he's really just more of a bulk guy. Yeah, because this may be a factor in the remainder of the season where we could see teams duplicate what the San Francisco Giants did against Dylan Cease is put seven left-handers in the lineup to face Cease. So in those types of starts, we may see Tanner Banks for that advantage or try to get rid of the opposing team's platoon advantage going lefty versus lefty. But right now the White Sox just have Tanner Banks. Mm -hmm. If you're hoping that the White Sox add another left-handed reliever during the trading season that is rapidly approaching for Major League Baseball, there's not many options, if any options at all. So we would have to start looking at which right-handed relievers the White Sox could possibly add that have good platoon splits, especially against lefties such as Joe Kelly uh, that we've mentioned many times throughout this season. Calling someone up from Charlotte is not a bad idea to give someone another opportunity. We just know that Bennett Souza is not very successful in, in that role. Anderson Severino doesn't throw enough strikes. So I am game Jim for a new face to help out Tanner Banks. But as long as Tanner Banks continues to throw well, we'll I think we'll start seeing him more often from Tony La Russa out of the bullpen. And just fingers crossed, we don't have a duplication of what happened in early May. And that Banks is able to keep the team at bay in his appearances. And we got a question from David in the uh, chat asking if a lack of left-handed starting pitching will be an issue for the Sox down the stretch or potentially in the playoffs. And I don't think necessarily starting, but I do think, you know, between an already rotation and a basically already bullpen, it would be nice to have a little bit of variety. Um, I think the Sox righties are good enough. You know, I, I think Lance Lynn versus Houston aside, I think that's really, you know, one of the, one of the problems last year with uh, just how the rotation lined up against an Astros team that was good enough to take down what the White Sox are doing pitching wise. I think that maybe made it a little bit hard to trust what the White Sox have starting wise, but I think their pitching is good enough uh, right now, one through five to mix and match. And the righties are good enough against lefties. They have enough variety in their offerings to not get hammered against lefties. Um, but yeah, it would be nice just to have somebody, anybody, you know, especially if Aaron Bummer were able to come back and, you know, to, use that Rick Hahn line, be the, the equivalent of a trade acquisition by being his old self. Like that would be such a big help. You can't count on it. And even if Bummer came back, they'd probably need somebody who used to be in the Garrett Crochet role before Crochet mm -hmm. got hurt just to have the depth. But I think Aaron Bummer coming back could be, um, you know, I, I guess right now, as you mentioned with the lack of trade targets uh, and, and even then, like we've seen the White Sox struggle to import relievers from, you know, one high leverage situation for one team to another, but having bummer come back would be such a boost to this team just to provide that versatility, the variety against teams that might try to line up well against them later in games. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. For the Chicago White Sox, let's now preview their upcoming homestand, and it is a critical one. As the Chicago White Sox will start three games against the Minnesota Twins Monday through Wednesday, and then they have a four-game home series against the Detroit Tigers. This is a great opportunity for a White Sox team that's 38-39. and 39. Here we go again, Jim. We just had this conversation a couple weeks ago for the last homestand to get at 500 or be above 500, and we don't have to worry about the White Sox being below 500 for the rest of the season. This is another opportunity. The White Sox failed that opportunity when they won the series against the Blue Jays and then proceeded to lose three out of four to the Baltimore Orioles. For the Minnesota Twins, setting the stage, they are 45 and 37. They are first place in the American League Central. As we do take a look at the American League Central standings on the web stream on youtube.com slash machine. And I guess the Minnesota Twins, again, are eight games above 500. And they currently have a two-game lead over the Cleveland Guardians, which the Guardians had a tough series against the New York Yankees. Everyone's having a tough time against the Yankees this year. Cleveland lost two out of three against the Yankees. They are 40 and 36. They're one and a half games back of Tampa for the final postseason spot. And there are the White Sox, 38 and 39. They're four and a half games back of the Minnesota Twins as they get one game back as the Twins lost that series finale to the Baltimore Orioles. And the White Sox are four games back of the Tampa Bay Rays. The Twins have won six of their last four games, and that Baltimore series, they did win that series, Jim. But boy, Baltimore gave them a tough time. 
the two wins for the Minnesota Twins required to be walk-off wins uh, for the Minnesota Twins. There, it was really close to almost saying, thank you, Baltimore, for sweeping the Minnesota Twins in Minneapolis. That Orioles team's playing some really good baseball, so maybe it helps lessen the stain a bit. Mm-hmm. Probably not. Uh, of the White Sox, we've seen three out of four to the Minnesota to, to the Baltimore Orioles at home uh, in their last homestand. Your pitching probables for this series and starting on 4th of July, it's going to be Johnny Cueto. This is Paul Canerco bobblehead day for those attending the games. The gates will open at 5.40 p.m. Central Time. Michael Kopech will be starting on Tuesday night and then Wednesday getaway day for the Minnesota Twins. Lance Lynn will be on the mound for the Chicago White Sox. For the Minnesota Twins, it's Dylan Bundy on Monday. Chris Archer on Tuesday, and then Joe Ryan, who's been very good for the Minnesota Twins this year, will make the start on Wednesday. All right, Jim, that's setting the stage for this series. And let's just go with the overall general theme, because for White Sox fans, especially on Twitter, and coming off sweeping the San Francisco Giants, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm now for this series. If the Mm -hmm. White Sox were swept by the Giants, it may feel like a funeral at Guarantee Ray Field for these upcoming three games. But now White Sox fans have hope after a really good weekend in San Francisco. How important is this series for the White Sox season? It's, you know, I, I've seen, you know, in the conversation, in, in the replies to your tweet, just you know, surveying what people were expecting, what they thought. You know, I, I saw a lot of, you know, kind of sentiment saying that if they lose two out of three or get swept, like it's a failure, like the season's, you know, could be over. I don't think it's that like, I, I'm very careful about using the phrase must win because, you know, technically, you know, must wins don't arrive until you know, for a contending team until like September, like mm-hmm. <laughs> just, you can always come back. You, I, I don't want to go to that well too often, but I think emotionally it's a big series. Like fans, you know, want to like this team. They want to be able to trust something, anything like, you know, it, this team is a little bit like Gordon Beckham's career. Like every time you think he's turned the corner, like sometimes you turn a corner, but if you turn a corner four times, you're back where he ended up. And that's kind of where uh, the White Sox have gone this season. Like yeah, anytime they win a series, they lose, you know, the next two, it just two steps forward, two and a half steps back. And it's uh, this series, you know, we've seen the defense undermine the White Sox. And that seemed like uncharacteristic how, you know, we, we know they're not going to be a good defensive team, but, the, the the ugly defense seemed a little bit uh, just out of hand. And now that's been tightened up. Uh, we've seen the pitching rebound. We've seen the starting pitching, you know, one through five, pretty solid. Some bumps here and there. But, you know, when you compare it to what a rest of the leagues, one through five looks like, they're fine. Uh, they're enviable. I, I think they're in an enviable position compared to most other teams. I think the Twins would trade places with what the White Sox have. Bullpen is up and down, but okay uh really comes down to the offense and i think this is going to be kind of a fascinating series just because west johnson um twins pitching coach left for lsu uh he left last thursday so um when you look at their pitchers like we've seen um especially chris archer he's been on such a specific usage plan uh like two times through four to five innings 
turning over the bullpen. We've seen the Twins bullpen start to take on water. Um, Joe Ryan is a case where he's, I think, earning a longer leash. And so he might not be as susceptible to short hooks, but he was that guy before. Dylan Bundy is somebody who I think Twins have been worried about trying to get too deep into games with him and wanting to uh, you know, take a win whenever he's provided one through five innings. Like uh, I think the West Johnson game plan uh, was oriented uh, uh, around not exposing the starters too much, but now with the bullpen looking rocky, uh, it looks like there are going to have to be some sacrifices made with their starting pitching plan. And I think it's incumbent on the White Sox offense to expose that uh, to, you know, if they have to go beyond their comfort zone with Archer, uh, show them why they're uncomfortable doing so. Same thing with Ryan, same thing with Bundy. Like Bundy shut them down for five innings the last time they met in April at Target Field. Like they, the offense needs to show more and the offense needs to make, uh, is it Pete Maki? I think their new pitching coach now, mm-hmm. or bullpen coach, I think his first name's Pete. Um, you know, they have to just make him and the rest of their pitching apparatus sweat a little bit more because I think they had a very, they had a sensible pitching plan, but it was delicate, you know, especially with like Maeda being out over, uh, not being, uh, you know, as durable as they'd hope to where like, you know, their, the innings are hard to come by. And we've seen, you know, some, uh, some late game failures, especially against the guardians. And then the, or- they were able to get back against the Orioles with some late game strikes themselves. But I think the offense needs to step up here. The offense needs to make it sloppy for the twins and, and uh, disrupt their best laid plans. Because I think right now with the way, uh, you know, with when they're catching them, uh, this is not the most comfortable place for the twins. Looking from the white Sox, we know the offense is going to be important. The, I think shutting down the Twins offense will also be just equally as important for the White Sox. The Twins did not score a lot of runs against the Baltimore Orioles. So I am hoping the White Sox with better pitching can do the same against the Minnesota Twins. My concern is that if the Twins jump out early, especially in Monday's start against Johnny Cueto, that could maybe set the tone for not just that game, but maybe for the entire series. We know that Johnny Cueto, if you're going to get to Johnny Cueto, you're going to get to him early. And you're going to get to him early in the first 30, 40 pitches of the game. Can Johnny Cueto avoid early trouble Monday night against Minnesota Twins, Jim? I think so. Like, you know, it's. I want to say when you look at the Twins offense, it's been a little bit sketchy as of late. They have some guys who are swinging, you know, uh, some swing and miss cases. But I think, you know, when it comes to the offense, it's really about like Buxton, Arias, Correa, and then the rest can be managed, I think, to some degree. Or, or if they beat you, then, you know, fine. Like, yeah, I guess, you know, Urshela has, you know, some, yeah, he's made some big plays, some big contributions here and there. Like the rest of the lineup's not negligible, but I think they have a dangerous portion of their lineup that I think just you have need to try to like avoid walks to like the nine hitter when, you know, the, when the rest of the lineup comes around, when the heart of the lineup comes around. So I think Cueto's pretty good at managing. Like, I think when it comes to like the inexplicable walks, I think Giolito got burned by the inexplicable walks. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, Cease has had those moments before Kopex had those moments, but I think, you know, Cueto, you know, for better or for worse, his problems come with hittable strikes. And like, you know, mm-hmm. he tends to, I think his mistakes come inside the strike zone. And then like he, he, finds his he fine-tunes his command to to work out whereas we've seen with other pitchers like Kopech especially early on you know he walks guys early 
then then hones his command late. Like his problems are outside, and then he eventually, uh, you know, gets a handle on his command inward. I think Quato's problem he goes inward out. Like his mistakes are inside, and then they eventually expand to where they're acceptable mistakes. So, I think that's really my concern. But I think you know if you're looking for you know to manage uh, a lineup, I think he's better than others at managing. Uh, you know, attacking hitters who need to be attacked. And then uh, when the damage is done, like we saw that with the, you know, three homers, they're all solo shots. I think if you can keep them, if you can mitigate the damage to where like any big hits from the big bats are with nobody on, I, I think the White Sox can overcome what they do. So that's Johnny Cueto. Later in this series on getaway day, Lance Lynn is going to be making that third start. And maybe the series, as far as the outcome of that series, will be on the line when Lance Lynn does make that start. Lance Lynn posted a scoreless outing and helped the White Sox shut out the San Francisco Giants in San Francisco to start off that three-game series. Can Lynn follow that up? From what you from what you saw in San Francisco, Jim, is Lance Lynn fully back after two starts where from my perspective, he was still trying to get his footing and break off a lot of rust facing major league hitters. I think he's close. I think, you know, maybe you'd want to see like a tick more velocity, but in terms of working all four quadrants and outside those quadrants, like off the plate, getting chases, getting bad contact, like that ability was there. And I, you know, I'm looking at like a guy like Buxton and, and trying to just, you know, manage, his explosive bat like you when you look at you know he's got such a weird um line like you, when you look at you know he, he's hitting the low 200s but he's slugging over 500 the iso is insane uh he's got one of those you know we, we talked about before like you know how i you know i just don't like when a hitter has like you know or i prefer like when a home run hitter has like three rbis or four rbis to every homer i think it looks aesthetically pleasing mm -hmm. buxton has one of those really ugly lines where he's got 38 rbis to 21 homers just like the, the yeah. adam dunn joey gallo type thing just you know he has you know he has that kind of insane bat speed we saw him walk off liam Hendricks, and uh you know managing that i think a guy like lynn with the way he was throwing against San Francisco can do that because like Buxton is great at centering stuff up, especially like middle, middle, middle up, middle down. Like he can cover height, but the inside outside off the plate, like he doesn't have that insane hitting zone that I, I think, you know, like a guy like Jose Ramirez, you know, I, I think, you know, they both are dangerous hitters, but like a guy like Ramirez is dangerous because he can cover so much. Whereas like Buxton, his danger is more limited because like if you make a mistake, he'll beat the bejesus out of it. But I think if you, if you keep them outside, if you keep them like on the corners or just off, you can get them to expand and chase and get himself into trouble, swing and miss that sort of thing. So I think Lynn, the improvements I like seeing from uh, the giant start is it didn't see like the, the, the swings he was getting on fringe pitches, I think are characteristic of the swings he gets when he's on his game. He's a guy who's hard to tell just because he's not overpowering if you drop in like over the course of a season and see him start, start three or four games, you don't understand what the big deal is. Uh, he just, you know, I guess he's kind of like in and out burger. Like uh, I don't really, yeah. When I, when I, the, the times I tried in and out burger on the West coast, I wasn't that impressed or I, I didn't get why it was such a big deal. Like, why do people love this place? Like it's a good burger, but it's fine. But people say the consistency is what's important. And every, you know, every location is the same, everything's fresh and it's great. And, and that's kind of, kind of what Lynn reminds me of. He's like, 
he doesn't blow you away in terms of you're looking for like a, a pyrotechnic display of velocity and break and ugly swings and you know uh, like Chris Sale like getting hit by pitches you swing at like he doesn't do that he just gets these you know, ineffective swings on pitches that are up down off the plate below the zone just above the letters that sort of thing and I think that's the kind of start we saw against San Francisco and I think if he does that that's the kind of way you can make Buxton a lot less dangerous. I did not know you were not that big of a in and out Stan. It's I, fine. I learned something like, today. I, I think I would have been more impressed by it before like the wave of five guys, better burger chains. Mm-hmm. Now I think like you can find a good burger anywhere. Whereas like when it was like Wendy's Burger King McDonald's and such, I imagine in and out was a lot more of a godsend. Yeah, that's true. Again, I'm a Culver's guy, but everybody knows yeah. that. Uh, you mentioned Byron Buxton and what's the best way to deal with Buxton during this series. The Minnesota Twins have been careful with his playing time, but I've got a feeling in this three games against the White Sox, the Twins are going to let him play all three games against the White Sox. I, I would be surprised and it would be very beneficial if Rocco Baldelli, the Twins manager, does sit Buxton for any of these three games. Maybe he does for the Wednesday getaway day. But you mentioned as far as it's not so much the height, it's inside outside against Buxton. I'm imagining Jim at some point in this series, it's going to be a close game. Maybe the game is on the line and Byron Buxton is facing Liam Hendricks in the eighth or ninth inning or another White Sox reliever. How do you want the White Sox to work against Buxton? Is they, is this a similar situation where we get really uneasy when it's Jose Ramirez coming up to the plate? With the game on the line. Well, I think the the walk-off is fresh in our heads, partially because, you know, such a damaging hit at that point in the season, but also because, like, I don't know if you on MLB TV, those who watch it, like that's now a baseball zen highlight is Buxton's walk-off, which you know, uh, I guess side tangent here. Like, I like the baseball zen feature when it was like, you know, uh watching the grounds crew rake the infield or the chalk <laughs> being displaced or opening day balloons, that sort of thing. But now that's highlights, like that's not Zen, you know, like walk off homers and, you know, you know, people going nuts. Like that's, you know, the, the, I think they've lost the thread on, on what that's all about. Maybe that's just because I'm watching, um, you know, the, you know, Byron Buxton walk off Liam Hendricks, you know, a couple times a game. But I think in that walk off, like it was a case where I think it was a three, one count and Buxton could sit fastball, no matter how good Liam Hendricks's fastball is. If you know what, if you know what's coming, you can load up like Buxton can, damage a fastball as well as anybody, even if it's up in the zone. So I think it's really a matter of like being able to throw sliders when he's not expecting it. Cause I mean, like he, he can damage sliders. He can damage changeups. Like he can do everything. Um, but I think it's more of a matter of like, just don't throw him that fastball in a fastball counts, especially like when one swing can end it or one swing can uh, flip the script. Like first, you know, they, they could have walked him. Like the walk wasn't the worst outcome. So that's what was so, uh, irritating about that pitch choice, the decision to pitch to him at all. And I think, you know, if he, if there's a case where they have to pitch to him, then so be it. You've dug your own grave. That's baseball. Um, you know, you have to overcome certain challenges and obstacles over the course of the game. But if they don't have to pitch to him, if the ability to pitch around him or um, you'll walk him, is available, then I would like to see him being bombarded with sliders, with change-ups, depending on, you know, whose better pitch is available at a time. 
Uh, I just don't want to see that fastball in a fastball count because that was just a, that was a bad, you know, talking about Tony Larusa and, you know, he doesn't look at results like three, one fastball to Byron Buxton with the ability to walk him is a bad choice. That got a bad result. Yeah. Yes, it did. And hopefully the white Sox do a much better job against Byron Buxton in this series. Again, he's their best player right now. And he's the one that has hurt the white Sox in the past continues to hurt the white Sox in the present. And the White Sox are going to have to deal with Byron Buxton as, again, he signed that seven-year contract with the Minnesota Twins. And he's playing really good baseball this season for the Twins. All right. The series difference maker. What do you think is going to be one of the key factors to determine if the White Sox win this series or lose this series, Jim? Well, to to uh, go back to an answer I tipped earlier, home runs. Yeah. The ability to put the ball over the fence, to not be uh, – you know, out homered, uh, you know, maybe you can get by with being out homered if it's like five to four or something like that. And the solo that, that comes down to whether it's solo shots or guys on base, but to, uh, continue to, uh, if that disparity between home and road or sorry, uh, home homers between, uh, uh, the, the white Sox and the visiting teams, if that disparity continues to grow, it's hard to see how they get traction in the central, unless they just get very lucky with sequencing. And I think, you know, We've seen that with the White Sox this year and their inability to get over 500. That sequencing, especially with the lineup that has a few good hitters, but you know the back half of the lineup is guys who have been scuffling and or hurt. It's really hard to count on that paper cut offense. Yeah, the weather. So there is going to be some rain that's coming through the Chicago area around five o'clock today. It should not be threatening first pitch for the White Sox. Uh, and you're getting a little bit of a, a heat wave coming into Chicago for a couple of days. The temperature is going to be at 86 degrees. So we always hear about wait until it gets warm in Chicago. It's going to be warm on Monday, Tuesday. The high could be 99 degrees, Jim, mm -hmm. in Chicago. So theoretically, the ball should be flying out of the ballpark on Tuesday for both teams with how hot it is. And then Wednesday, you have a cold front coming in. We could see a delay on Wednesday. That could be a later game than the 1 o'clock game, or there is a risk of it being washed out uh, as the temperature will be 77 degrees. So a pretty significant drop-off temperature-wise in the Chicagoland area going from Tuesday to Wednesday. But we always hear, and they keep saying, just wait until it's warm. Well, it's going to be warm in Chicago. I mm -hmm. The, the expectation that I have with the home runs is that I want to see at least four home runs hit by the White Sox this series. I think that they have the potential to hit more, but just the way that we haven't seen a lot of home run power from this team, I would be content if they hit four in this series. Is that enough home runs to win this series against the Twins? It could be. Like, I think once you get to four, then it becomes a matter of like, how many can the White Sox prevent? So I think that's a good number. Yeah, because if they get out of homeward like seven yeah. to four, that's not the offense's no. problem. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's another problem. Well, I mean, it could be the offense's problem in the sense of well, the twins are hitting seven homers. Mm -hmm. Where are your home runs? Yeah, but that would be a pitching problem if the pitchers allow seven home runs against the Minnesota Twins. I, I find this to be a pretty fascinating series at a fascinating time for the Chicago White Sox after they had a losing month in June. And they had a losing month in April, but they had a winning month in May. So this is going to be an every other type of month to start the season. 
-hmm. White Sox really need a winning month in the month of July. And they're off to, again, a very good start this month, sweeping the San Francisco Giants. And now it's time for the series prediction with a special edition of Sox Machine Live. And Jim alluded to it earlier, but I did post a poll on Twitter, which you can follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. How many games will the White Sox win this series against the Minnesota Twins? We had 419 of our followers vote, and 52.7% said that the White Sox will win this series. They'll win at least two out of three. 21% have the White Sox sweeping. I think that would be great. That's very optimistic with 19% believing the White Sox would just win one game. And then the 6.7% of my followers who are either really dour about the White Sox or they are Minnesota Twins fans pick the White Sox will not win any games in this series. Jim, how are you feeling about this series? Is this something that the White Sox can win at least two out of three? I think so. Like, um, you know, when it comes to two out of three, um, it's not so much a knock on the twins or anything they're doing wrong, how they're playing. It's more a reflection of like what we should expect from the White Sox. And having been swept by the twins earlier in the year, they should be able to even the ledger or, you know, come close, mm -hmm. put a dent in it. Um, you know, they're playing well. They have good pitchers lined up. They have certain pitchers rested. Uh, Liam Hendricks coming back to relieve Kendall Graven and Joe Kelly, who got a you know much needed day off in the finale. So, you know, things are lining up. Guys are getting healthy. Guys are producing. There are some upswings, like you mentioned. So if not now, then when is kind of my attitude. And, you know, that's not necessarily enough. You know, as we talk about, like if the twins blitz them with homers and the White Sox still don't have the ability, maybe when is going to be really hard to come by. But uh, based on who they have available and how it's lining up, uh, and as you mentioned, the weather too warming up, the excuses are getting, uh, you know, getting thinner. So it's just more of a matter of like uh, whether they're good enough and whether the talent they have on hand can uh, counter the talent that the twins are allowed there. So two out of three feels fair without saying, you know, I don't think it's homery to say it's uh, mm -hmm. two out of three, just more of a matter of like, if these teams are evenly matched or if the White Sox should overtake them, this is how you start going about doing it. Yeah, and in the amount of games both teams have before heading into the All-Star break. So the White Sox and Guardians are going to play 15 games between now and the All-Star break. The Twins are just going to play 12, which is a bit odd as far as the scheduling. The Twins have seven games against the White Sox, and they have three games against the Rangers, who have been playing better baseball of late. And then they have two games against the Milwaukee Brewers. So there is a chance here where the Minnesota Twins could maybe be 500 during that 12-game stretch. They go 6-6 six and six before the All-Star break. They're still eight games above 500 when everybody arrives to Los Angeles for All-Star game festivities. For the White Sox, their next 15 games, seven against the Twins, four against the Tigers, four versus the Guardians. Like This is a pretty critical stretch for the Chicago White Sox because you're not winning the American League Central with a losing record in your division. And you're not going to win the American League Central with a home record that's also losing and that you're below 500. The White Sox have to play better at home. They have to hit better at home if they're really going to get themselves back into the postseason race. So I feel like if they can win two out of three, that keeps the momentum going to the weekend series. And we know how well the White Sox can play against the Detroit Tigers. We know how poorly the Detroit Tigers can play against the White Sox that maybe after next weekend, Jim, the White Sox are finally above 500. We don't have to worry about them being below 500. 
Now I mentioned the Tigers. Mm -hmm. The Guardians' next 15 games, they got eight, eight against the Tigers. They have that four-game series against the White Sox, and the other three games are against the Royals. I feel like the Guardians have a prime opportunity in the next 15 games, Jim, to go on a run. Yeah, it, it's a case where, you know, we know the White Sox have the easiest schedule, but part of the reason they have the easiest schedule is because they play the Tigers and Royals a lot, and so do the Twins and and, and Guardians. So I think that's really the, uh, that's why that uh, schedule thing is, is smaller solace than you would like to think. But uh, we got a, we got a fun question uh, from Dave in the chat asking, who is the biggest Twins villain now that Donaldson is gone? And I was looking at their lineup and, you know, Buxton's there, but I mean, Buxton's a villain because he's good. Like in terms of just. Mm -hmm. On the same level as Jose Ramirez. Like we don't hate Jose Ramirez. I don't hate Byron Buxton, but you're right, Jim. He's just, he's the villain because he's their hero. Yeah. Um, You know, same thing with like Arias. He's, you know, he's annoying to watch because he makes good contact, but he's not dislikable. Like in terms of just, you know, there's nothing, the way he carries about the way he goes about the game, like. I like watching him play left field sometimes because he's not a good outfielder. So he's got that going for him. So I'm looking up and down the rosters and I think, you know, the, the pitching staff is more or less nondescript except for Tyler Duffy. You know, I always remember him as being the guy who got annoyed that Tim Anderson mm-hmm. uh, kind of back, backpedaled out of the uh, batter's box and he started the whole Anderson getting plunking thing. And uh, he's the, like that CC Sabathia call him weird ass Tyler Duffy. <laughs> and that always comes to mind. Like I always want to see the white Sox uh, smear him. And so that's kind of, I, I think right now he's the guy who I just like seeing uh, on field misfortune befall him. So I, I think I'm going with him, but he's just a reliever kind of medium leverage. So it's not as satisfying as seeing Donaldson fail three or four times a game. We did get one comment that people will say Carlos Correa because of the Houston Astros. That's the, I think that's also a good option as well. Yeah, it's just now that he's not on the Astros anymore, it's not as – and also he's not going to be – you know, he's going to opt out after the year. Like, he's just not really a fixture. Like, so I, I don't really associate him with the Twins so much. I don't know. But maybe the series will change my mind. People don't forget, Jim. Yeah. I mean, I mean Donald- yeah, I hold it against them, like, individually, but I just, you know, in terms of, like, Twins villain – Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and incorporating like twins history, uh, not so much. That's true. So Tyler Duffy, it is. I'm still surprised he's with the twins, but maybe we'll see Duffy versus Anderson in this series, and hopefully Anderson has another big moment against Tyler Duffy. But that will do it for this episode of Sox Machine Live, our special edition episode on Fourth of July. Thank you to everyone that watched the live stream. Which again, you can do so on our YouTube page at youtube.com/slash Sox Machine. And don't forget, as we talk about the Minnesota Twins, next time the White Sox do face the Minnesota Twins, we'll be in Minneapolis. And there are many White Sox fans that are be heading up to Minneapolis as along with us and our friends from the 108. We are hosting a road trip. We are hosting a pregame party on Saturday, July 16th. We still have tickets available. We are approaching capacity. The capacity is 150 people, and we have sold a little more than 100 tickets so far. If you are interested in going and pre-gaming with us for the Saturday, July 16th game, the party starts at 1030 in the morning at North Loop Galley, just a short walk away from Target Field. It's $30 per person. Out of that that $30, you get three drink tickets, so three beers will come with you. 
on that $30. You get to hang out with other White Sox fans at North Loop Galley before the White Sox take on the Minnesota Twins in Minneapolis. You can purchase your tickets on SoxMachine.com. If you just discovered Sox Machine or the Sox Machine podcast, again, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. But if you don't get an opportunity to watch the live streams or watch the videos on our YouTube page, you can listen to the audio versions of every Sox Machine Live that are uploaded into our podcast feed, such as Spotify and Apple Music. And you can help support us at patreon.com slash Machine, where our Patreon supporters, they get more. They get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of both the podcast and website. And when we have new Stocks Machine swag, they're the first ones to obtain it. We have monthly plans starting at $2, and you can save with an annual subscription. Again, you can sign up at patreon.com slash Machine. Socks Machine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball, and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for watching and listening. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.